In the Western world, the gender pay gap has dominated discussions for the last few decades, but the issues around the economic status of women and women's role in the workforce are far more nuanced, incorporating issues of race, class, consumerism and ongoing shifts in the legal status of women in often very subtle ways. This is Rachel Havard with the Oxford Commons. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the global and historical implications of women, work and economic empowerment. For our first interview, we are excited to welcome both Laura M. Argus and Susan L. Everett, authors of Women in the Workforce, part of OUP series, What Everyone Needs to Know. Laura and Susan discuss with us women's growing role in the workforce and the problems with definitively measuring the gender wage gap. And finally, the lasting effects of COVID-19 for women's economic security. Thank you for joining us for this podcast about women in the workforce. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Thank you, Rachel. I'm Laura Argus. Uh, I'm an economist and demographer, uh, a professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. I uh, jointly with Susan Averett and Saul Hoffman, I'm also the author of uh, the Oxford Handbook of Women in the Economy. Okay. Thanks, Laura. I'm Susan Averett, and uh, I'm a Dana professor of economics at Lafayette College. And As Laura said, we had an edited volume in 2018 from Oxford University Press. I'm also the co-author of a textbook, Women in the Economy, Family, Work, and Pay. So I uh, regularly teach a course on gender and economics to undergraduates. Thank you. I'll start with asking you, what is the overall theme of your book? Or if you had to describe a few main messages that your book conveys, what would you say it does? Well, I'll start. Um, I would actually say there's a few main messages that come through very clearly, kind of permeate the book. One is that women have increasingly become an important part of the paid workforce over the past century. And this has dramatically changed the lives of their children and their partners. This means that issues such as childcare and maternity leave have become forefront in policy discussions, as we've all seen reading the news today. To give you an example of how much women produce now today, there were in 2018, 33 billion hours of productivity for the US economy, That's a lot of hours of productivity, and 43% of those were worked by women. So women are not an inconsequential part of the labor force at all. Interestingly enough, although women are important contributors to the economy, how we view their work really differs from that of how we view men's work. Women do a lot of what we call unpaid labor. And a lot of this is caring work, right? Caring particularly for children, um, housekeeping type work, you might say. This kind of work is mostly done by women. This is true really in every country in the world. Um, It's not interestingly enough counted in our gross domestic product, our measure of national output. Um, Weirdly enough, if a woman stays home to care for her own children, as many women do, This is important labor that we don't count in our productivity statistics, but if she happens to work full time and uses the services of a childcare center, this is counted in our gross domestic product. We have ways of measuring unpaid work. We currently don't report those. We know its value is substantial, but it doesn't count yet in official statistics of economic productivity. So that's another theme, right? That women do a lot of work that's unpaid and largely invisible because we don't count it. And of course, once women are in the paid workforce, there are many important differences between men and women, and many of those have really meaningful consequences for women's economic well-being. 
For example, men and women increasingly work in similar occupations, yet there's also a fair amount of occupational segregation, occupations that are completely male or completely female, and it remains the case that jobs with a majority of women still pay less. Other important areas of difference include representation in top management, workforce communication and professional interaction styles, and our book covers these topics and many more with an eye towards lots of studies to allow readers to understand these differences in their economic impacts. I think Laura might jump in here. Yeah, so I just add one other um, topic, and that is the bulk of the book really does focus on things that happen in the workplace, and Susan highlighted um, many of those. But these differences um, result in inequalities that last even after women exit the labor force. So because men and women have uh, different levels of earnings and those sort of magnify over their entire work career, they also have different types of jobs that often carry with them different types of retirement benefits. Their economic situations in retirement can look really different from one another. If you add to that the fact that women live substantially longer than men, that's true across all countries, their lower retirement income needs to last much longer. And so we find that the, the poverty rate for the oldest women in the US, and particularly women of color, women who never married, is substantially higher than, than average. About 25% of women over the age of 75 live in poverty, and that's compared to about a 9 or 10% poverty rate um, across the whole US economy. You've really covered a lot then. Quite an um, informative book that you've brought together. Um, I think it's really interesting what you've said about how it affects not just in the workforce but post-work as well because of the age gap. So a lot of attention is paid to the relative pay of men and women. Is the gap closing, do you think? So probably the starting place for this question is to think about what exactly we're measuring or what we mean when we talk about uh, differences in relative pay or specifically a, a gender pay gap. And you see statistics tossed around a lot, but very specifically, the most common measure is understanding the proportional difference in pay for a typical woman working in the labor force and, and a typical man. So the comparison is the total amount of earnings of the average woman in the workforce who works full time and full year um, compared to the average earnings for a man who works a similar number of hours. And so, although women tend to work part-time more than men do, we've sort of abstracted from that part of the difference. So using that measure of relative pay, uh, we've seen that the gender pay gap was about 60% in the mid-1960s, so women earned a little more than half of what men earned, and it's improved to about 80% by the early 2020s uh, in the U.S. And although you might think this sounds like steady progress, it wasn't quite evenly distributed across those years. So much of the improvement happened in the 1980s and the 1990s. But more recently, the, the closing of the gender pay gap has really slowed dramatically. This type of pay difference is, is certainly not unique to the US. These gender pay ratios in the UK and Australia are strikingly similar to the US, right around the 80% mark. There are some developed countries that are doing substantially better than that, um, notably Nordic countries and very specifically Norway, Denmark, and Belgium are sort of at the top of the gender pay ratio distribution. Women in those countries are paid well above 90% of what men earn in those countries. Some of that is due to um, not just having equal pay policies on the books, but some pretty vigorous enforcement of those. And then 
these statistics are still pretty general. There are lots of studies that try to understand the causes of the gender pay gap, and, and we sort of think about it as to whether those are reasons that legitimately would result in pay differences or not. And some of the important changes that took place and helped narrow the pay gap over the period that we saw um, is the fact that women's educational attainments have increased relative to men's. That's true in lots of countries. In the US, women are now more educated than men on average. We know that college campuses have far more women students than men. And there's also been a narrowing of the gap in the number of hours worked, um, work experience over their lifetime. Women uh, exit the labor force in slightly smaller numbers now um, in response to having children. Uh, it, it remains pretty steady over the life course. And we've even seen changes in gender-based occupational differences between men and women. That's really interesting. So what would you say or what do you think it might take to close the gender wage gap? Good question. You know, as Laura said, big picture wise, We've got a couple of reasons for the pay gap. She pointed out that some are legitimate, things like differences in education, work experience, and even occupation choice. And uh, even some controlling for some of those things doesn't entirely eliminate the gap. And studies have shown that discrimination has lessened over time. We know, for example, that back in the day, the turn of the last century, for example, discrimination against women was quite overt. There are many jobs that women simply couldn't do. So we can't rule out labor market discrimination entirely. Rather famous and clever study noted, for example, that major symphony orchestras were overwhelmingly male. But when they changed the auditions for those orchestras so that they were blind, so that you couldn't tell whether the musician who was auditioning was male or female, then the representation of women in orchestras really increased dramatically. So we knew there was some maybe not overt bias, but some bias that was going on against uh, women. And that's only one small example of numerous studies. But I really think today, the answer is kind of what lies between these two extremes, right? Whereas women catch up to men in work experience and are even more educated, as Laura pointed out, and as discrimination lessens, why is this thing not closing? Well, we know women often choose careers uh, and sometimes even education based on the needs of their families. And they're doing this much more often than men. And this is in part because women take on more household responsibilities. This particular gender norm of women doing more housework has been really slow to change. So we've got this vicious cycle. Women seek out jobs that are complementary to their family, but that means they're not earning as much and they're taking more care of their family, right? So they might choose jobs that are more flexible. So for example, we know that entering med school, most entering med school classes are half women and half men, but yet we know a big pay gap opens up uh, after med school. And part of that is women choose jobs with more flexibility. They're more likely to be pediatricians versus surgeons, for example. Finance, which is a career that pays really well, has a reputation for really long hours that are simply not compatible with the family because there's no flexibility there. But people have started to ask whether or not it has to be that way. And so one answer is, you know, more technology that allows for flexibility would really help women and men balance work and family obligations. We also have an entire chapter in the text on anti-discrimination laws. And listeners to this podcast were probably all familiar with Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which was passed in 1964, 
which is kind of the cornerstone of anti-discrimination law in this country. And it prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. And it's enforced by the EEOC. So we certainly have legal recourse, right? When women feel they've been discriminated against, they can turn to the law. Importantly, in 2020, the US Supreme Court even affirmed that the protections against sex discrimination extend to LGBTQ individuals. But there's still more to be done, right? So there's a lot of talk about things like transparent paychecks, letting people know what other people earn so they can see if the person sitting next to them doing the same job is actually earning more than they are. Uh, we also know there's uh, policies underfoot and some of these have been passed in some states, talk about not asking about prior pay so that women who were paid low at their previous job don't get stuck with that low pay at a new job. So there is, there is a lot going on. It really sounds like there is a lot going on. You point out that not only do men and women earn different salaries, but they're also treated differently in their role as consumers. Can you tell us about the pink tax? Yeah, so this is sort of a, a popular topic. Um, certainly on campus, I've been asked to, to give talks to undergraduates who are pretty interested in this. There are websites focused on what's called the pink tax. It's sort of a clever name, but the ironic part about it is that it's, it's not really a tax. For the most part, this isn't differences in how the government chooses to tax individuals. Rather, it refers to differences in prices that are charged for products that are marketed either to men or to women or that, that have more feminine characteristics or are, are um, designed to be more masculine in nature. So there have been some attempts to legislate against aspects of these price differences. And as a consequence, there were a couple of fairly large scale studies that tried to look at whether prices for products that were pretty clearly intended for women differed from those uh, intended for men. And there's examples of that. New York City did one. There was one done in the state of California, but they're a little bit older. And so to get current information, uh, as we were writing the book, we did some pretty casual research. It's not the kind of thing that would stand up uh, to a peer-reviewed study, but we just wanted to see if we could verify that this type of thing is still going on. And so we did, did some searches for products that we could identify as uh, intended for men and women. I was actually walking across campus to give a talk on, on the pink tax to a, a, a group of undergraduates. And I walked by one of the convenience stores on campus. So I walked in and I saw disposable razors hanging on a, on a display. And the dark blue disposable razors cost $4.99 and the identical, except for their color, pink razors cost $5.99 for the same size package. So I thought it was, it was good evidence on my way to the talk. Other searches certainly reveal pretty systematic differences in, in product prices. They often differ by color, like buying luggage, even toys, their price differences between pink and red scooters. And it doesn't really stop at uh, products that have sort of obvious gender targeted audiences, but even things like services. If you look at the prices of men's and women's haircuts, if you look at differences in dry cleaning prices, it costs more to clean, dry clean a woman's blouse than a men's shirt. And so you can find examples along the way. Even if this is pretty systematic, and we uh, these reports show that it is, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but it's not necessarily um, discrimination in the standard sense. 
because the retailers aren't discriminating based on the identity of the person buying the product, but rather they're charging different prices depending on what product you buy. So if I buy blue razors, I get the same price as a man who buys blue razors. And so it's a little bit more difficult to, to combat. One of the questions you might ask, well, you know, how big a deal is this really? And, and that's where these reports come in. And so they systematically looked at prices of all kinds of products and found that women pay about 8% more for kind of standard items of clothing, pay about 13% more for hygiene and household products, and that over a year of, of purchasing those products, if you think about valuing them at today's prices, that results in about $2,300 more spending per year, which is not an insignificant amount. And all of this is happening at the same time that we know that women are paid nearly 20% less than men are. It's quite not shocking, but a bit shocking, really. Um, <laughs> in several places in your book, you show data broken down by race and ethnicity, for example, unemployment rates, gender wage ratios. Can you explain why this is important? Absolutely. And this was something that when Laura and I were planning out the book, you know, we were very intentional in making sure that we were doing this kind of work because the aggregate statistics mass realities faced by women based on these uh, identities shift over time. But for example, we know the overall gender pay gap, uh, women earn about 80% of what men earn, right? But if you break that down by race and ethnicity, and if you consider, let's say we say white men are the most kind of privileged group in our economy, we find that Hispanic women earn 55% of what white men earn, and Black women earn 63%. That's way below the 80% overall pay gap, right? So that tells us something about the economic situation of these groups uh, that we mask if we don't look at the whole picture. And Title VII, as I mentioned, our anti-discrimination legislation has really struggled with this idea because it says you have to claim discrimination on race or sex. But of course, we know that Black women are facing discrimination on versus of race and gender. Right, and so that's another struggle that we're having with our anti-discrimination legislation and trying to make it as fair as possible. And it relates to these intersectional identities. Uh, we also noted, as you said, unemployment rates vary tremendously by race ethnicity. And here's a recent example in the United States. In December, 2021, so just a couple months ago, uh, the unemployment rate for all women fell. But for black women, the unemployment rate actually rose. And this tells you something about the kind of work that's being done by people in different groups, right? That there is occupational segregation across race as well as gender, and that we need to be attentive to that when we're thinking about policies. Another example that we grappled with in the text is that we know very little about the economic situation of the LGBTQ community because the census doesn't collect this information. So we don't know. Uh, we can't identify lesbians in the data. So we had to undertake quite the quest to find any kind of economic data to calculate a gender wage gap for the lesbian population. We had to actually resort to data from health economic surveys uh, because they're not in the standard uh, American community survey, the standard census product. So there are certain people who are just invisible in the data. And yet we know uh, from citing recent work in our book that lesbians face a fair amount of discrimination in the labor market. 
Um, so if we fail to look at statistics through this lens of the various intersectional identities that people possess, we're actually really ignoring the economic realities of these groups, right? And many of these groups are marginalized. And it's important that we know this because we have to be able to design effective policies, right? If we don't know there's this disparity, if we don't know that Black women's unemployment rate rose in December, we can't dig down deep and find out what's going on. And we can't then design policies that make sense, that are smarter and that benefit all women partially dependent on the identities that they carry. Would you say this is a global issue or is it just specific to say the US or um, the UK? Oh, I think that's a great question. And, and Laura, you should feel free to jump in here. But uh, from my reading and studying, it is absolutely a global issue, right? Everybody carries different identities with them. And these can be based on their racial and ethnic groups. They can be based on their age, on their socioeconomic status. And so I think I do think it's actually global. Laura? I, I would agree. I we certainly know that there are uh, racial and ethnic disparities that cross most developed countries. And in developing countries, things you know sort of just look a lot different. That there are differences across countries in what type of information is a sort of fair game to ask about in surveys. Um, in some places, you know, asking religious affiliation is really considered intrusive. Racial and ethnic identities obviously differ quite a bit across countries, but the, the data gaps in the U.S. are really very noticeable. I think that some of the economic surveys in other countries actually are, are better able to, to get at some of the sexual preference, religious affiliation uh, differences that, that maybe were harder to get in U.S. surveys. Thank you. Um, this links back a little bit to what you said earlier about the ability to work from home and be flexible with working. COVID-19 and the policy responses to it have changed conditions in the workforce. Have women been affected differently than men? So this is, this is really interesting and obviously lots of people care a whole lot about what's happening. The, the COVID-19 pandemic is is unique among um, sort of economic downturns that we've experienced recently. It's obviously motivated by severe health risks, and so some people are really negatively affected by that. It included kind of an overall economic recession or downturn in most countries, but then there were kind of selected forced closings and the way that different countries dealt with um, restrictions on how to manage what was a health crisis uh, along with all those economic considerations. The severe impact and all of the sort of new policies spurred an awful lot of research, but what we know comes from um, pretty short-term responses um, to policies enacted during the COVID-19 pandemic. So far, what we know that it's strikingly different from um, most recent recessions and, and most notable among those was the Great Recession. And across most countries, the Great Recession really affected male-dominated occupations. That was certainly true in the US. The COVID-19 induced recession um, clearly affected women more than men. And there are a number of reasons for that. But you saw big spikes in women's unemployment, which meant that even women who wanted to work weren't able to find jobs. And some of that is due to the occupations affected by the pandemic. So because there were required closings, we saw 
individuals who worked in schools and daycares, um, you know, not able to go to work, it, it, um, especially in daycares. It wasn't a work from home kind of option. Um, and those are predominantly female workforces. In terms of the ability to work from home, that had occupational differences as well. And there was a dividing line sort of by higher education, higher socioeconomic status jobs. So we know that that impacted people on the lower end of the income distribution and also people employed in service industries, which are predominantly a female workforce. The other aspect of this was maybe not so much forced exit from work, but something that sounds more like voluntary exit from work, and that is exiting the labor force, so choosing not to work or leaving one's job. And, and we saw that happen significantly more for women than men as well. And, and a lot of the early work that looked at that phenomenon found really big spikes of women leaving their jobs right around the time that the pressures for school closings um, hit families. And so particularly for women with young children, we saw large spikes, or school-age children at that point, um, large spikes when schools closed in the spring, and then really big spikes when, they, when, when schools couldn't fully open in the fall 2020. Daycare is still an issue, and we see women have exited the labor force. They're not coming back in, in really large numbers. There are studies that show that the, the pay gap increased, that women's earnings fell relative to men. That study was done using um, British data. Uh, unemployment declined both in the, in the UK and in the US. Um, and the jury's still out on what the long-term consequences of that will be. Will, when, will women recover their earnings if they re-enter the labor force? Will they re-enter in large numbers? I'll kind of amplify a point Laura made, which was about you know, the effect of this recession really differed on, you know, whether or not uh, you had more education or less. And so women who could stay at home could keep working because they had jobs where they could work at home. And those were predominantly white women, whereas uh, women in hospitality and healthcare often had to still report to work. And if they didn't have childcare and, and such, they often had to leave the workforce. And, and many of those women were women of color. So we saw big spikes in unemployment, particularly in the U.S. for Hispanic and black women much higher than we saw for white women. So highlighting again, uh, this importance of looking at things with an intersectional lens. Thank you. I have one last follow-up question. Do you have any plans to write a follow-up book to this, considering that more data might come out on the amount of women who do go back to work after COVID? We certainly talked about it. We, uh, Laura and I have been working on projects together for uh, decades, literally, and we have some other more, you know, academic paper projects that we're working on now, but we have discussed the possibility of another book and we have even discussed the possibility of something that, you know, kind of focused on COVID, also just an updating of this book in a, in a few years. Yes, yeah, certainly this is a topic that the current state of the world isn't remaining static, right? Things are changing and I've already got sort of a... a a file folder with things that I think, oh, we should we should include that in an update. So I think this is the type of book that really, uh, after a fairly short number of years passes, it's really in need of current information. I'd also echo the fact that COVID-19 has really changed the way that people interact with the workforce. Working from home is becoming much more standard. It affects women and men quite differently, and especially looking at families with children will be important. So yeah, it would be a, a great thing to pursue.
Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next guest is Laura Edwards, the author of Only the Clothes on Her Back, Clothing in the Hidden History of Power in the 19th Century United States. Laura joins us to talk about her research in the 19th century legal status of textiles and how it provided a unique path to economic empowerment for both women and people of colour. I'm here today with Laura Edwards, author of Only the Clothes on Her Back. Can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Well, I'm Laura Edwards, and I teach in Princeton University in the History Department, and my title is The Class of 1921, Bicentennial Professor in the History of American Law and Liberty. And I focus on legal history in the 19th century with a focus on women, gender, race, um, and slavery. And I'm particularly interested in the ways that ordinary people use law and made law. Thank you. Only the clothes on her back really grabs your attention as a title. Can you explain why you chose it? Yes, you know, sometimes titles of books don't come to you until the end and you're searching around for one. And sometimes they come to you right at the beginning. And this one was there from the beginning because it encapsulates the project. It captures the central contradiction and irony and puzzle of the whole thing. We now use that term, only the clothes on her back, to refer to somebody who's in extreme poverty. They don't have anything, only the clothes on their back. But as I discovered in the period that I'm looking at, which is revolution roughly to the Civil War and a little beyond, that actually clothes and clothing has incredible value. It has value economically, but it also has value because of legal principles that attach clothing to the person who wears it. So only the clothes on her back is the clothing that women in particular can own, right? Um, they're also the, the, the kind of property that women in particular can own. And they're the kind of property that people without property rights generally, enslaved people including, can own. So it is irony. It's only the clothes on her back, but clothing you can own legally if you don't have property rights because clothing attaches to the person who wears it. So this opens up a whole world where people are using clothing and then ultimately all kinds of cloth that can be turned into clothing and textiles. This is the kind of property that people without property rights can own. And so it actually is valuable. And then the book traces a whole series of changes that transform the value of those goods, that change the legal principles that attach to them, and that also change the economic value, and that turn them ultimately into something that is simply a consumer good, rather than this valuable form of property that people can legally own and then legally trade. So I'm trying to open up a whole world where only the clothes on our back is not something that makes you poor, but something that could have made you not wealthy, but in certainly a better position, and then how it becomes something that is, in fact, a sign of poverty, a saying that can only mean that you have nothing at all. So that's what the book is about. It is about only the clothes on your back in a world where that meant a lot to a time when it doesn't. Can you explain about the economic status and the opportunities for economic empowerment of women across class and race during this period? Yeah, um, you know, I'm focusing on United States in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, right? And this is a period of industrialization in the United States. So you get the introduction of cotton factories, and we've often focused there on cotton, on textile factories, on mechanization, and then women moving into the factories. And that's, though, 
misleading in some ways because the focus here is on the United States and that story usually is within the United States. And I'm looking at the textile trade more broadly and the ways that United States is situated within larger global currents. So actually industrialization happens in the textile trade. It already started happening centuries before the point where US historians usually located in the early 19th century with factories. What has happened is you've moved from small shops to larger kinds of organizations. So merchants would then be coordinating the production. Um, this would take place in households, but they would coordinate production like in a, a town, in a city, and then they would gather all that together and sell it. So we've kind of missed this piece because we're looking at mechanization. We're thinking factories, we're thinking industrial context is the mechanisms of change and the motor of change. But in fact, what happens really in the reformulation of textile production is expansive, right? People keep using hand labor, but they are sort of expanding out the number of hands and they're expanding things out, more production, but using similar kinds of techniques. So this is happening before we get to the textile mills and wool. And also this is happening in fibers other than cotton. So there's wool, there's silk, there's flax and linen. So there's a lot of space here for hand labor as you get the gearing up of production for a global market. And women are doing a lot of that hand labor. They're doing the spinning. Increasingly, as the 18th century um, unfolds, they're doing more of the weaving, and they're also taking up more of the sewing. Um, and what makes their labor valuable is the skill that they put into it. It also is the law that makes their labor valuable, and I'll talk about that later. But it's important to understand that hand labor persists, that women have a lot of skill, and they can make value, oftentimes in their own homes, and sell the value of their labor by sewing things, by spinning things, by weaving things. And that there's a real market for all of that that develops alongside the industrial economy that is moving and, and growing with the textile mills, particularly in cotton. So think about this, for example. If you make more cotton cloth, and people can buy more cotton cloth, this produces a demand for more seamstresses because people can have more clothing. So women then, their hand labor in sewing becomes something that they can then leverage, sell. This can be hard to see because a lot of the labor that women do is in their homes. So it seems like they're doing domestic labor for their families. And sometimes they're doing both things at the same time. They're producing for the market while also doing domestic labor. And they'll mark this out in their diaries saying they're doing some things for home production. And then they mark out the other things that they're doing that they're selling on their own time. And goods that they produce for the market for domestic use, they also change over time. So it's like a towel that you might make for home use. Well, you might decide after you get done with it that you're gonna sell it instead. So we've kind of had these false dichotomies of market versus domestic, of you know industrial production, women in the workforce, which is women at home. And women in this period are in this sort of netherworld between both of those things. They're using the value of their skills and keeping them because they can keep textiles legally and keeping the value of that while they're also doing domestic work. So we've kind of missed this piece, this really important piece where women are leveraging the value of their labor before they become officially part of the workforce, 
which is itself kind of an artificial construct. It presumes that work is not done in the home and things that you do in the home don't have value that you can sell. And that's what these women are doing, using their skills, the value of those skills, and then focusing in on textiles, which is a form of property that they can legally keep. Thank you. The connection between material culture and law is central to the book, yet it's unusual for law and textiles to be considered in the same thread. What is the connection and why is it so important? So that's a great question. And we often think of material culture just in terms of the economics. So it's material, what it meant to people, how it in fact, like wearing clothes, um, was about your individual identity. Sometimes we also think of material culture in terms of the economic value of the goods. But what made clothing and then textiles more generally valuable was their legal qualities. So there's this long-standing assumption that whatever you're wearing belongs to you. And this makes sense. Your clothes are considered an extension of you. It's your outer skin. It's the way you present yourself to the world. This is a whole series of cultural assumptions about the value and importance of clothing to who you are and the way that we expect all people to be wearing these things. And so all of those cultural assumptions then become embodied in law with legal principles that basically say your clothes are yours. That's the presumption. What you're wearing um, is yours. And the fact that you're wearing it is legal evidence that it is yours. But then ordinary people and especially people without strong claims to property generally, they use those legal principles to say essentially that any textiles they make are theirs or any kind of textiles that pass through their hands are theirs. It's not just their clothes, it's uncut cloth, it's bed linens, it's shoes, it's boots, it's ribbons, it's hats, it's all kinds of accessories. And so they're using those legal principles in really creative ways, extending them out. And then they're turning clothing into all these textiles. They're turning them into things other than just stuff that you wear and use. They turn them into currency. They turn them into capital. People save textiles, put them in their trunks, um, and then leverage them for business ventures as the basis of collateral for loans. Um, and also then they make claims to these things in court. So they're using textiles to bring themselves into the economy in ways that would otherwise be impossible. They're also using them to make themselves heard within governing institutions. They're using these legal principles, demanding recognition of them, and then embedding those principles into the way that the economy and law works in the first half of the 19th century, which is really pretty profound. And in particular here, women are using textiles to, to legally legitimize business ventures that would be otherwise impossible. So women produce cloth, thousands of yards of it, and they do this because they can make cloth, of course, but they have legal claims to cloth. And that meant that if they have legal claims to cloth, they could keep that cloth. So there is an example in the book of the Cooley women who live in Western Virginia, right near the North Carolina border, um, in the very far corner of the state. And they have an entire business of weaving and sewing and what they do, they trade all of this with local merchants for better kinds of cloth. And you would think that, oh, they're trading one consumer good for another, but what they're doing is producing textiles value, trading that value for 
basically investing it in better textiles, which they can keep. The mother then distributes these textiles to her daughters and it becomes their trousseau, um, what they bring into marriage, their savings, something they can keep that won't be seized by their husband's creditors. So this becomes, you know, valuable women's property that women pass to each other. Um, and they're creating businesses in the area of textiles because they can have legal claims to that. That's really quite fascinating. You also integrate race and class and gender into your book. You talk about enslaved people, people of colour, working people and white women of various social statuses, groups which don't immediately seem to have much in common. Why do you do this? So, yes, we're used to books that associate and analyses and approaches that associate a person's legal status with the, the status of that person. So there's a body of slave law which defines the status of enslaved people. And that distinguishes enslaved people from white women, for instance, who are defined usually in terms of the laws, if they're married, in terms of the laws of coverture. And those are different from the laws that were defining the status of free blacks who are not enslaved, but they have a whole nother body of laws that defines them. These are the laws that attach to the bodies of people. And I'm really interested in the legal principles that attach to the textiles themselves. And this is that whole body of law that is about establishing connections of the textiles to people. And those legal principles actually travel with the material goods. And I find this to be fascinating, right? So we're imagining a legal system usually that is defined in terms of the laws of, you know, a nation state. So the laws of the United States. And yet the trade in textiles has been going on for centuries. The legal principles that attach to them, particularly the principles that attach clothing to the people who wear it, those go back centuries and they move with the textiles. And so these principles come with the textile trade in colonial North America, they kind of settle in in local areas. And once there, people use them. And they don't really have a lot to do with the laws of, you know, a locality or a state or a nation. These are laws that move with the material goods that are recognized through practice and through custom. So those material goods are really the center of the story. And those legal principles then sort of transfer over to the people who wear them, right? So clothing comes with this idea that it attaches to bodies, but then when people put on that clothing, they can keep it. And so they acquire a legal presence through those material goods. Now there's a whole range of people then who use those principles, who try to at least. And so enslaved people use them, White women use them who are from wealthy families, poorer white women use them, free black people use them, men and women. And so it's the material goods that connect them all together. Of course, not all these people can use these principles in the same way because of the legal status of their own bodies. But nonetheless, they try to use these legal principles of textiles. And this ties them together, I think, in a common legal culture um, in ways that we ordinarily don't think of them having commonalities. And it's because of those material goods that they do. Can you explain why Americans during the American Revolution and beyond allowed people without rights, such as women and enslaved people, to make claims to textiles in law when they were not able to do with other forms of property? You touch upon this in your chapter, Polly's Yarn. It is really fascinating question. Um, why would all these elite men allow people without rights to property, to trade 
in property and to make claims that look kind of like property rights, although they're not. So let me back up and explain what I mean here. So the claims that people make to textiles are legal principles that recognize an attachment to the goods, not through property rights. So people don't have rights to property. It's the textiles that attach to them and they use those principles. So when these claims are affirmed in court, the courts are not saying, oh, well, I'm affirming your property rights to those goods. They're saying, oh, well, we have a customary practice that attaches those goods to you. And because those practices are acknowledged, it's in the public good, basically, and part of the public order that we recognize those attachments. And so to write things, to put things back where they belong in the name of the public order, we'll put those goods back with you because we know that they're attached to you. It's an entirely different logic of understanding the attachment here. No property rights, but because of the legal principles of textiles, people can claim them. And let me give you an example of this. One of the chapters starts out with an enslaved woman named Polly. She spun some thread, she's dyed it, and she's gonna be trading this. And then another enslaved person comes through. This enslaved person actually um, is claiming a debt of her husband and he seizes her yarn. And Bali says, you stole my yarn. So what does she do though? She's an enslaved person. She technically has no property rights. How can she own yarn? And if she can't own it, how can she prosecute a case of theft? So what happens is ultimately um, a magistrate hears this information about this crime. Um, and he fills out legal forms that say that her master had thread stolen from him. And this is what you would have to do because the master has property rights. The master is the only person with the rights to prosecute a case. So you fill this out as the master's yarn on the outside of the legal form. But then you open up the case, basically you turn the page. And in the content of the case itself, Polly begins saying the yarn belonged to her. She's not saying I have property rights to the yarn because she doesn't. She's saying the yarn belonged to her, not I owned the yarn. And she's there affirming that principle of textiles attached to me. I made it and it belongs to me. And then she brings in witnesses who confirm that she had made the yarn, that it was in fact connected to her, it was her yarn. And ultimately the person who stole it is convicted of theft and the yarn is returned to Polly. And this is all done in the name of the public interest, the public good of affirming established, long established, centuries old practices that attach clothing and other forms of textiles to the people who made them, wore them, who have some connection to them. So she doesn't have property rights, but she does have that connection to the yarn. And this is recognized in courts across the United States in the period between the revolution and the civil war. Um, and even enslaved people can try to use these legal principles. Polly was able to do so. Other enslaved people try and are not, but they're there and they are available for use. And so people are making use of these and through practice and use is the way that they stay in the legal system. It's because of people like Polly who are claiming these and insisting on recognition that these principles then move through the legal system. The bottom line is that magistrates, elite men, really had no choice here, given the legal system, to recognize some of these claims in principle 
in particular instances, they might have, you know, rejected certain claims over others. But these legal principles are so entrenched, and there's such insistence on recognizing them, and they have such a place within the legal system that they're really hard to ignore. Thank you. You've clearly conducted extensive archival research here and used real-life people as case studies, as you've said, each one illustrating the different legal, social and cultural aspects that can be gleaned from material goods and textiles. Did you find any particular case or cases revealing during the research process? There are so many, it's hard to narrow down. But I start out with an example of an enslaved woman in New York City who had absconded from her owner. It's actually sort of unclear, a slave, indentured servant, but she absconded from her owner. This is a period in New York when um, there's abolition, but there's still enslaved people as the abolition process is gradually being implemented. And so she runs away and she takes clothing that she had worn while she was working in her master's house with her. And in her statement, she essentially says, yeah, I ran away. I absconded with my body, but those clothes are mine because I wore them when I was working in my master's house. So she's making that distinction. I, I, I stopped when I read her words because it's like, oh, she's making a distinction between what she can own and what she can't. Her own body is something maybe she cannot own, but clothes, yes. Not because of property rights, but because of that strong attachment. And then as I was looking at cases, there were other examples of, of women, often enslaved women, but poor white women as well, who were then using those legal principles to trade goods so they would have stores of goods. And there's a woman, Margaret Cooney, who's in New York City. She has a store in her kitchen. And it's like, wait a minute, her kitchen is not hers because the whole house actually belongs to her husband. So how does she have a store in the kitchen? And I realized, oh, the store is not the physical building. It's the store of goods. And she can have a store of goods because those goods belong to her. And most of those goods are, as you might imagine, textiles. So she's trading because she can claim those goods, even though she can't own other forms of property because she's a married woman. And all of a sudden, then you see this whole economy emerging where women, enslaved people, free blacks, control an area of the economy where they're constantly trading in goods that are not just useful because of the material purposes they serve, but because they're transforming these into currency. People buy goods with textiles all the time, and textiles work really well as currency because there's real consensus as to their value because people are so familiar with them. They come in a variety of different kinds of denominations. So a handkerchief to a really expensive uh, length of cloth. A handkerchief, you can buy cheap things with, the expensive length of cloth you can cut up or you can buy more expensive things with. So they're really useful that way. And they're very much in demand. So people are constantly using textiles as currency. And some people actually prefer to be paid in textiles over banknotes because banknotes are suspicious if poor people, enslaved people, even married women have them, but textiles are not suspicious. So they can keep and trade textiles legally in a way that is more difficult with other forms of currency. And none of these people can acquire credit in the ways that men can because they don't have the legal capacity to enter into contracts or be sued for their debts. 
So there's this whole world of exchange out there that we've seen as informal, that we've seen as underground, but it's actually ruled by all of these legal principles attached to these goods that people insist on um, enforcing. And they insist on enforcing them in local courts. So these cases, all of these people who are trading in the streets of New York City, but who are also trading elsewhere in cities, Boston, Providence, Charleston, and also in rural areas as well, you see the economy in entirely different ways. And this is an economy that is basically run and governed by women and by men of color, uh, men who are enslaved, men who are on the margins because of their class position. So the people that we've imagined to be excluded were actually central in the economy. They knew about all the kinds of mechanisms that we assumed they were excluded from because those spilled over into the ways that people were trading with textiles and producing textiles and leveraging textiles. But then another interesting case at the end of this period was Mary Todd Lincoln. I never imagined I'd be writing about Mary Todd Lincoln, but Mary Todd Lincoln, well, after her husband died, tried to sell her clothing because her husband's will was tied up. She had no means of support. So she did what women have been doing for centuries, which is to sell their old clothes. And actually her old clothes were really valuable because they were made of silk and velvet and furs and satin, and thousands of dollars worth of clothing. And they were also actually made for her and designed for her by a designer, Elizabeth Keckley, an African-American woman who had used her sewing skills to free herself from slavery and had built an entire business around her ability to design clothing and make clothing for elite women in Washington, DC. So she had designer clothing that was really expensive. When she tries to sell the clothing though, this is a different period. This is after the Civil War. All sorts of changes have been happening in law and in the economy. And clothing is coming to see not as something that is legally yours, but it, it's lacking in the kind of value that allows you to trade it. So it's starting to be seen just as, you know, clothing as material goods and, and your personal clothing, but not something that you can trade. That starts being seen like something that's uh, distasteful. So she is completely ridiculed for her efforts to sell her clothes. And she's accused of like something akin to prostitution, selling herself, it's in bad taste. Nobody does this, this is terrible. And all of this discourse really ignores the history of using clothing as a means of currency, capital, as leverage for people without property rights. So she's being ridiculed for doing exactly what women in the past have always done, using their property and leveraging this for their own interests. And this is where the title of the book comes into play, because clothing by that point has become something that is only the clothes on your back. Um, the kinds of legal principles that were recognized that allowed them to be used as currency capital and whatnot are disappearing in the legal system. And they're also disappearing from memory. So we're left with Mary Todd Lincoln and even more devastating is Elizabeth Keckley, who was also pushed to the side in this whole kind of debacle with Mary Todd Lincoln. And the value of what she had been able to do to make value out of clothes, to 
make value in a way that freed her from slavery, that allowed her to build a business, that gave her independence and freedom in her life, that is also disappearing. And after what happened to Mary Todd Lincoln, where her clothes are also ridiculed, she never is able to rebuild her business again. And those are the metaphors of what happens here. The clothes, which had legal qualities, textiles, which had legal qualities that people could use, that really mattered in a world where they didn't have rights. As rights become more and more important, as the legal qualities of textiles fall away, women in particular are left in a bind because they don't have rights, and yet they also have lost the legal qualities of textiles. And so, like Mary Todd Lincoln, they're left with only the clothes in their back, which don't have the legal power that they once had. Thank you. That leads quite nicely into my last question. Now, when there's fast fashion around, if you like, and numerous people have the same top, say, would you say that the legal qualities are pretty much obsolete now? Yeah, it's a great question. I keep thinking about today, right? Clothing was always really important to me. It's an expression of individual identity. It, it expresses who you are. Um, I feel like those elements of the legal culture are still with us. But I think what we're forgetting is the ways that actually, because clothing was so personal, that's what allowed people to basically alienate it, to sell it, to use it as something other than simply clothing, right? And now we imagine that what you need for legal power is not like cloth and clothing, but rights. And this is the other piece of the story here, is that throughout this period, rights become more and more important in the legal system. This becomes the way and the primary way, and now pretty much the only way for claiming property. So rights have real advantages over legal qualities of textiles. Um, when it comes to claiming property. So if you have legal qualities of textiles, you need to prove that that's yours. It has to be attached to you. And it has to be very personal. People have to see you wearing that shirt. And that shirt is often distinct and different from other people's shirts. So the clothing has a very personal quality, a very individual quality. It is very much attached to people. So it's not like today with fast fashion where everybody has the same shirt and you can't really tell the difference. People personalize their clothing, people see it on folks, there's differences that really make it very individual. The problem with those kinds of legal claims is they're very particular. So you have to be in a place where people know you and know your clothes and know the textiles that you've made or the textiles that pass through your hands or seen you trading in them in order for you to make those legal claims. So they stay in place. Rights is a way of making legal claims to property moves. In the legal system, given the way it's set up in the late 18th and early 19th century, rights travel over borders. So the rights that I have in one place to property are similar to the rights that I can claim in another place to property if I'm a person who can claim rights. So my property and my claims travel over space. They also travel over time. And this is really important in an emerging capitalist economy where goods move, where people move. So if I'm a woman and this say, I will take an example from the book, a woman in Virginia um, outside of Charlottesville who has a shop where she sells clothing and various other kinds of accessories and she also does some tailoring and um, does seamstress work. She has a pretty thriving business, but only there. She's a married woman. She can control that property there because she's established those practices there. But she can't own property 
in other places be because people don't know what those practices are. That makes it very difficult for her to trade in other places. It also makes her difficult to acquire credit and it makes her difficult for her to grow her business. If she had rights, she could claim all of those things. So as rights become more and more important, this places women then at a disadvantage. They're the ones in particular who have difficulty claiming rights. Enslaved people obviously do after the Civil War with abolition. In theory, African-American men have rights. In practice, they also have more difficulties claiming those rights. And so we've moved to a system where property ownership is primarily through rights. And a lot of the population doesn't have those rights. And yet they also are in a system where the legal qualities of textiles have begun to dissipate, where people aren't recognizing those quite as much because they're um, elevating rights over those. So in that sense, we've really placed people in the late 19th century and 20th century at a disadvantage. And in this way, you know, the whole questions about fast fashion and our connection to clothes, there are echoes of the past there. But I think the echoes of the past are even more pronounced when we think about now, where we imagine claims to property, but also larger claims on government solely in terms of rights. And we think about the difficulties that a lot of Americans still have in making those claims. Women in particular, also people of African descent, people of color more generally, have difficulty making rights claims to this day. And that history is also embedded in this book. And it's also part of a larger, more complicated legal history, a past where people made all kinds of legal claims in terms of material goods, but in other ways and not solely through rights. And our reliance on that has ignored the ways that the troubled relationships that many Americans have always had to claiming rights and making claims through that particular legal form. Thank you for coming and talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Rachel. This was so fun. And I just so appreciate the opportunity to get to talk about this. I find this material just completely fascinating. So thanks. We want to thank our guests, Laura Argus and Susan Averett, authors of The New Women in the Workforce, as well as Laura Edwards author of Only the Clothes on Her Back. Both books are now available from OUP. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of The Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to The Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 70 was produced by Stephen Philippi and Sarah Butcher. This is Rachel Havard. Thank you for listening.